Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I'd like to talk about a poem from 1735. Don't go away. It's really good. It's called Epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot and it was written by Alexander Pope. And Alexander Pope was a sort of 18th century poetry superstar. And as ever, I always say to you, don't take it that the voice of the poem is necessarily a pure version of the poet. Often poets use filters and personas and have various other uh, methods to distance themselves from the work. Pope, I would say, uh, does that less than most. In this particular poem, it's pretty clear it is at least a version of Alexander Pope who's speaking. It's sort of a Pope as Pope would like to be seen in, in many ways. But he talks about very personal things to him. And um, it's fabulous. I, I love it so much. I bought... Uh, a 1735 first edition of this. Um, it came out in a pamphlet and it's in that slightly yellowing paper. It's, you can smell the scrofula on it, a fabulously 18th century artefact. And at the beginning of this uh, pamphlet, there's a sort of bill of complaint um, which Pope writes explaining why this poem has been written and he says um, and I'm quoting he says yes it's a bill of complaint begun many years since and drawn up by snatches as the several occasions offered so these are bits of poetry that Pope has been writing for some time now that sounds a bit doesn't it like uh, somebody doing a bit of a filler greatest hits album and think well, if I'm going to write this I'll pad it out a bit with some of my old stuff. It's it's a bit more complicated than that. The bits that were written, these uh, snatches, I would suggest were written in tremendous rage. Pope kept, and this is one of my favourite Alexander Pope facts, he kept six personally bound volumes of anti-Pope criticism. So every time he read a bad review, anyone in a gossip column slagging him off or whatever, that went into the scrapbooks. And I think those scrapbooks have been consulted heavily during the writing of this poem. He says, I had no thought of publishing it in the uh, introduction. OK, well, if he didn't, he either wrote these things to distribute amongst his uh, close circle of friends, which is a thing that he did, or they were therapy. Uh, someone upset him and his way of dealing with it was not to go to the gym and lay into a punch bag. It was to write uh, maybe 40 verses of poetry. The main reason he gives for publishing this now is that the latest attack on him has pushed him over the edge. And this was... Um, a poem or, or poem, certainly one specific poem that was uh, co-written by uh, Lord John Harvey. They say in satire you're supposed to aim upwards rather than downwards. This is aiming upwards. Lord John Harvey was the vice-chamberlain in the royal household, favourite of the Queen, golden boy of the Prime Minister Robert Walpole. I mean, he was he was the main man. And also the, the other, his partner in crime in this particular instance was a, a former friend of Pope, which obviously makes it a bit worse, um, a woman called Lady Mary Wortley Montague, which, um, although if you're a Pope fan, as I am, it's tempting to see her as, as the enemy, was a, she was a remarkable woman, an 18th century female writer with all this, the, the struggles and prejudice um, overcoming that that uh, suggests. She was also a champion of uh, smallpox inoculation. So it was a real, she was a thinking individual. If you're finding it hard to, to not like her, I should say that probably the best-known portrait of her features a black boy in a metal dog collar at her side. So uh, for the 21st century viewer, she's easy to dislike. 
I would say if I wanted to give this poem another title, or something other than uh, Epistle to Dr Arbuthnot, I would call it My Life as a Poet and Some People I Hate. That would be a fair summary of what we're going to get here. He's after Lord Harvey and Lady Mary Wortley Montague because he said they launched an attack not only on my writings but my person, morals and family. And whether or not you think that's a fair complaint, we, uh, you can decide when we have a look at that a bit later on. Anyway, the poem. Let's start with some, uh, some Pope. And uh, this is the first few lines of, of uh, Epistle to Dr Arbuthnot. Dr Arbuthnot, by the way, briefly was a, a Scottish physician and a very good friend of um, um, Pope, and actually his, his GP, if you like. Let me tell you, and I, I don't want to call this a warning, but it's something that um, I think the modern reader should be aware of. Pope specialises in the heroic couplet. Now, I don't want to lose anyone with technical terms like uh, iambs or um, pentameter or any of that stuff, if I can avoid it. So let me just say, heroic couplet, as far as we are concerned, is... Did it, 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 did it. And that is Pope's oeuvre. I know it's also used in pantomime. And Cinderella finds herself in love. One wonders what shall fall as from above. That's not a great, I made that up. And it rhymed. Come on, be fair. It sounds like a very, did it, did it, old-fashioned Thing, but in Pope's hands, he's so good at it. I honestly believe that he thought and dreamt in heroic couplets, and he's the master um, of them. In in uh, in my opinion, anyway. So we start off. Bear in mind, he's a super famous poet living in Twickenham, and he is getting a bit of grief from what we would now call fandom. So this is a kind of an example of when you hear a celebrity moaning about being famous and how people won't leave them alone, which I always find slightly nauseating. But here, it's beautifully expressed. Let me tell you, before we begin this, uh, just a couple of things. The dog star is serious, which is... uh, I know what you're thinking. It cannot be serious, but it, it, it is. And it, that, that, that um, is at its brightest when the weather is hottest. The Romans associated it with insanity. So, so that's why all these um, mad fans are, are around, maybe. That sound in the distance, I don't know if you can hear it, is... Uh, to be honest, when I set out on this voyage, I asked the crew if they would strap me to the main mast of our, sh- our ship, the, the Odyssey, that I might hear the sirens, so I can hardly complain now that, that I can hear them. And lucky you, you get to hear them too without going insane and ending up on the rocks. OK, here is the poem. Just listen to the beautiful balance of this. Shut, shut the door, good John, fatigued, I said. Uh, John, by the way, is John Searle. This is Pope's actual servant. So you, you see what I mean by uh, it, it. There's a lot of Pope, um, Pope biography in this. Shut, shut the door, good John, fatigued, I said. Tie up the knocker. Say I'm sick, I'm dead. The dog star rages. Nay, it is past a doubt. All Bedlam, all Parnassus is let out. Um, Bedlam was a mental hospital in London at the time, and Parnassus is the mythical home of poetry. So sort of mad poets are wandering the, the, uh, the, the countryside. All Bedlam, all Parnassus, Parnassus is let out. Fire in each eye and papers in each hand. They rave, recite and madden round the land. What walls can guard me or what shades can hide? They pierce my thickets, through my grot they glide. By land, by water they renew the charge. They stop the chariot and they board the barge. Um, Pope lived on uh, the Thames at Twickenham. 
And that's why he's talking about them uh, coming down the barge. His grot, by the way, he had a grotto, which is a sort of a wondrous underground cave, which um, I've been in it. It, it is a ca- it's still there. The house is gone, but the grotto is still there, and it's occasionally open to the public. I managed to persuade the, uh, the, the people who look after it to let me in. I, I just walked around there with a, an American academic who was also having a, having a gawp. And it is this, as I say, it's an underground cave and it's got on the walls things like fossils and crystals and mirrors all stuck up there by Pope. And there's a contemporary drawing showing him sitting in there writing. So to be in there, the idea that he might have composed in there is, you know, it was really exciting. Um, I'd, 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 uh, I'd recommend you checking it out the next time it's, it's open. So, yeah, so he's... Um, by the way, he lived... Uh, one of the reasons he lived out there was that there had been a law. He was a Roman Catholic, Alexander Pope, and um, I think the surname is probably the, the clue. And I, I also am a Roman Catholic. I'm going to upfront that, so I'm slightly on his side in this. But, for example, his parents couldn't live too near to London because Roman Catholics were thought of as too sneaky and too disloyal to uh, be trusted too close to the capital. And so he lives out at, at, at Twickenham in this, in, in this place. Um, Catholics were also barred from certain schools, certain jobs. He's part of an oppressed minority, that's... That's just a fact. And um, Jonathan Swift, the, the great 18th century writer who wrote, um, of course, Gulliver's Travels, apparently offered Pope, who was a friend of his, offered him 20 guineas to change his religion. So that was nice. I've actually got a, a framed signature of uh, Jonathan Swift. I'm just going to list, as we go through this, my um, collection of 18th century memorabilia. <laughs> Why not? Okay, I want to read you a bit more of this. It's about the poem. It's not about me. And that's a sentence you might never hear a comedian say again. So he turns now to um, Dr. Arbuthnot and asks for some sort of help with this fandom problem. Friend to my life, which did not you prolong. The world had wanted many an idle song. So if you hadn't looked after me, uh, Doctor, he probably called him John. He might have called him Doc or something. Uh, if you hadn't looked after me, the world would have wanted many an idle song. So he's being dismissive about his own poetry. But believe me, and, and it'll be apparent as we read more of this poem, he loves it more than I do. Friend to my life, which did not you prolong, the world had wanted many an idle song. What drop or nostrum can this plague remove? Or which must end me, a fool's wrath or love? A dire dilemma, either way I'm sped, I'm finished, I'm doomed. If foes they write, if friends they read me dead. So people either criticise him, and he had lots of critics, or they love him and want to be his friend, and in a way that's... Well, not even in a way. To him, that's absolutely just as bad. He doesn't want any rubbish comics hanging around. And not comics. He doesn't want any rubbish poets hanging. Oh, damn you, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> he, uh, it, it, I think it's, it's hard. It sounds quite resentful and unkind, the fact that he is a famous poet and these guys are, are sort of struggling to get on. Samuel Johnson, who, t- to call him my literary hero, would be something of an understatement. I was actually the president of the Samuel Johnson Society and still have the medal to prove that. Is that does that qualify as 18th century uh, memorabilia? Well, it's, it's related. Anyway, this is what he said um, about um pope in fact what i'll do first is i'll i'll read uh, a bit more of the poem and he's talking about these these poets who hang around his house and get on his nerves unsuccessful poets is the is the the gist of it 
And he says the only advice that he offers them is the advice that um, the Roman poet Horace apparently used to give to young poets, which was they'd go to him and say, is this any good? And he'd say, well, put it away for nine years. And then when you take it out, then if you still like it, then you should make it public because if it, that's a good test. It's a slightly uh, tough piece of advice. It doesn't really allow for poverty and desperation. Anyway, he talks about these um, after he's given them this keep your peace nine years advice. So the poet, the struggling poet says, nine years, cries he, who high in Drury Lane, lulled by soft zephyrs through the broken pain. Now, imagine that. This is the poet. Drury Lane would be a, a place for cheap flats, if you like, apartments. And there he's with a broken pain. So this, this struggling poet is lulled by soft zephyrs through the broken pain. So it's a sort of a mockery based on a sort of classical type style, lulled by soft zephyrs. It's the sort of thing you would typically find in uh, classical pastoral poetry but here it's a broken window and uh, it's a bit of a, a a grotty flat the poet's in nine years cries he who high in drury lane lulled by soft zephyrs through the broken pane rhymes airy wakes and prints before term ends obliged by hunger and request of friends the piece you think is incorrect this is the poet speaking to pope the piece you think is incorrect, why take it? I'm all submission, and what you'd have it, make it. So the, the poet is saying, if you don't like it, just, just change it. In other words, rewrite it, and uh, it'll obviously be a lot better, and then I'll say it was all me. Samuel Johnson says, and, and he was a massive Pope fan, uh, and in his life of uh, Pope, he says, the great topic of his ridicule is poverty. The crimes with which he reproaches his, his antagonists are their debts, their habitation in the mint. The mint was a sort of a sanctuary for debtors in, uh, in Southwark, in London, and their want of a dinner. He seems to be of an opinion, not very uncommon in the world, that to want money is to want everything. Oh, God, I love Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson had a lot of poverty in his life, so he, it was a, he was bitter about it. If I wanted to, um, quite rightly so, if I want to defend Pope on this, I think he was angry because he felt that poetry was his life. He'd given everything to poetry. And people wanting the, the, um, the fast track, um, he had no time for that. That made him furious. He was rich mainly because he had translated Homer and it had sold brilliantly well. And he'd also sold it by subscription, which was a fairly new idea. So it stopped the publishers from ripping him off. And he, he made a lot of cash out of it. And um, when he sealed his letters, Pope, the stamp had a picture of Homer on it. So he was very much Mr. Homer translator. But... Then again, the Homer was, uh, that translation was an enormous enterprise which took over his life and he said he kept him awake. It made him even more ill than he normally was. And so that also would make him uh, furious that these people think there's an easy way to become a star poet. Believe me, there's young comedians around with exactly the same ideas anyway. We move on. There's a, a thing, uh, this may sound cruel, but it's great. It's, it's uh, Pope explaining uh, to our boss, not who he's, he's speaking, why it's all right to slag off these um, rubbish poets because, well, I think the theory is essentially that anyone who can publish poetry or try to publish poetry that bad must have a really thick skin and consequently they can handle any kind of criticism and probably won't even notice it. And uh, I think this is fab. This starts a bit, to me this sounds a bit like hip-hop at the beginning. See what you think. He's 
bear in mind it's the idea that he's been he's a successful poet and he's been slagging off these um, less successful ones, which on the surface one might think a little cruel. You think this cruel? Take it for a rule. No creature smart so little as a fool. Let peals of laughter codrus round the... Uh, codrus, I should say, is a sort of a generic term for a, a bad poet. Um, it's a poet, he was apparently really a, a very bad poet in Rome, so he's referred to in um, in various uh, Roman writers. So he's just using this as just, it's a bad poet, is all you need to know. So he says, Let peals of laughter, Codrus, round thee break, thou, unconcerned, canst hear the mighty crack. So even though they're all laughing at this rubbish poet, he doesn't really notice that he's in, in the theatre now, pit box and gallery in convulsions hurled, thou stand'st unshook amidst a bursting world. So old Caldras thinks, oh, this is going well. I have, again, I've seen comics. Like I saw a, a comic who had about, I'd say, a hundred pieces of rolled up paper thrown at him while he was on stage and came off and said to me, I thought that was, I thought that went all right. So um, there might be something in this. God bless him, can I say. So he's making the point you can't upset these poets because their skin is so thick. Who shames a scribbler? Break one cobweb through. He spins the slight self-pleasing thread anew. Destroy his fib or sophistry in vain. The creatures at his dirty work again. Throned in the centre of his thin designs. Proud of a vast extent of flimsy lines. So the bad poet is like a spider spinning these rubbishy, thin lines out of him and feeling completely confident that everything is great. Here, of course, Pope speaks of lines of web that are flimsy, but also lines of bad poetry there are flimsy and are and emanate from the the hinder parts of these poets. On the Codrus point, um, it's you can read Pope, I think, in two ways. You can constantly zigzag from text to notes in a sort of a who is that, what who was that person he's referred to. Or you can just read it with gusto and only stop if you're truly log-jammed. I think that, generally speaking, with Pope... Um, I mean, I'm going to try and combine the two, so there'll probably be a bit more biogen history in this podcast than I would normally um, trouble myself with. But generally, because he's a brilliant poet, you get a general sense of what kind of person he's talking about even if uh, if you don't know the person and you probably won't for most of them it's sort of like say if we were in uh, 300 years in the future reading a poem from 2020 and in that poem it referenced uh, love island michael gove the europa league uh, applaud the nhs thursdays vaping carl over no scarred diesel cars yellow crocs and line of duty um it, we'd be struggling um the, our future selves but if the poet sort of makes these things understandable by context rather than specifics then um we'd get through it okay um and and, and also with 18th century poetry um you don't just get contemporary references you get a lot of classical allusions and we're a bit out of touch with that I think, in the modern world as well. But we're going to get through it together. Believe me, my, my main conviction is that it's worth the effort. I mean, do you even need to know who Arbuthnot is? The fact that it's Dr. Arbuthnot, you get the references that he's looked after Pope and stuff. Like I say, he's a Scottish physician, a scientist. He was also a satirist and a writer. And um, he invented John Bull. Oh, I, I don't know if you're aware of John Bull. It's sort of the epitome of the uh, the Englishman. That was uh, invented by Arbuthnot, apparently. So he was doing all right. Thanks very much. Um, okay, so Arbuthnot represents, I think, in this as well, a sort of a, um, 
a calming hand. So our both not is sort of saying, take it easy, Alex. You know, you, you're going, uh, you're getting a bit aggressive. You're laying into these people. You're hurting people. Um, I'm going to give you a list just to, as a, an example of the, uh, the name references. The, a, a lot of contemporaries of Pope who have basically upset him. And like I say, I think you can just get a taste of it. You don't need to know the individual incidents. And he's sort of saying that his poets, okay, he's attacked them, but they're still doing very nicely. Thank you. Has not Collie still his lord and whore? His butchers, Henley? His Freemasons, more? Does not one table, Bavia, still admit? Still to one, Bishop Philip seems a wit? Still Sappho, and he's just about then to go to lay into Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who he calls Sappho, when um, Arbuthnot interrupts. And it's a bit like, you know when there's a fight outside a pub and, and a woman grabs a bloke and says, it's not worth it, Alexander, leave him. Um, it's like that. So he's, la- he's rattling off these um, uh, people. You can, look all, you can look them all up. He's, he's, he's got, the grudges are uh, still available. Um, and then Arbuthnot interrupts. Hold, for God's sake, you'll offend. No names. Be calm. Learn prudence of a friend. I too could write, and I am twice as tall. We'll come to that. But foes like these. And then Pope comes back in. One flatterer's worse than all. Of all mad creatures, if the learned are right, it is the slaver kills and not the bite. So the point that he's making here, I'm both not saying don't use names. A lot of people just use the initials and, and even Pope in this, as I say, he uses uh, pseudonyms and stuff. But um, in that particular passage, apart from Sappho, he's basically using people's real names and uh, our Bothnot is, uh, is panicking about it. But I, I love the point that he makes at the end is, uh, is pretty amazing and that is... Um, it is the slaver kills and not the bite. So it's um, it's the, the, the saliva, the love. Kissing is worse than biting, if you like. So the people who love him, uh, one flatterer's worse than all. So people who, who, who pretend to love him, he thinks that's worse than the people who slag him off in, uh, in many ways. So if he hates, this is what I always think about... Um, celebrities when they start moaning about fame you always i was like, why why did you this is not a well-kept secret that um people want a bit of your time when you're famous so uh why why did you do it why bother to get famous in the first place and uh pope being a, a sharp character probably knows that that question is on our lips and so he um he goes in and explains why. And he says, um, and I quote, Why did I write? What sin to me unknown dipped me in ink? My parents or my own? So whose fault is it that I write? As yet a child, nor yet a fool to fame, I lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. So it was so natural to him when he was a kid long before he was famous i lisped in numbers so before he could speak properly numbers meaning like in in meter in uh in poetry it, it they just fell off him like windfall fruit basically and also he says i i left no calling for this idle trade no duty broke no father disobeyed um so it's not like he was doing a really important job and then he left to be a poet like a, a, a people did then. This was all he ever did. He was just born a poet and he just is one. He didn't have much choice in it. It's the way, he, like I said, this is Pope as he wants us to see him. And this bit, I, this is special, I think. The muse but served to ease some friend, not wife. So the muse that mythical place from which poetry comes was there to ease him like a friend to him he didn't have a wife and so the muse poetry was his supportive partner 
but listen, I want to give you the whole couplet. The muse but served to ease some friend, not wife, to help me through this long disease, my life. And that's pretty powerful, I think. I'll come back to it. To second Arbuthnot, so the muse is like a nurse to Arbuthnot's doctor. To second Arbuthnot thy art and care, and teach the being you preserved to bear. So physically he's being looked after by Arbuthnot, but spiritually the the muse is looking after him, the muse of of poetry. This sounds a bit, um, I, I need to clear this up, Pope was uh, constantly ill. He was four foot six tall. He was hunchbacked because of tuberculosis of the spine. His bone marrow was constantly deteriorating. Um, he was constantly in pain. Like I say, he's also a member of a persecuted minority who was denied formal education because there was bans on Roman Catholics in in uh, schools. So it must have felt pretty good in those circumstances to be a big famous poet. Why not um, live it up? Voltaire, the famous French writer, when he met Pope, said when he saw him across the room, the first thing he felt was pity because he looked not only hunchbacked and slightly withered, but grey with just constant pain. You could see that in his face. And um, so he said, initially I felt pity. And then when I spoke to him a bit, I felt admiration. And then when I spoke to him a bit more, I felt envy that he was so brilliant. And I think this is a sort of a multiple choice responses to Pope. Um, You pick which one you want. And a lot of 18th century people... um, picked admiration and a lot of them picked envy and he encountered a lot of uh, of envy and he bit back quite hard um he the this poem is full of vicious character assassinations of contemporary literary figures and you sort of imagine when when it came out the, the poem you just sort of imagine knowing it was published that day and Pope waiting to hear how Lord Harvey or whoever it was he'd, he'd slagged off, how they responded. It must have been quite tense. He does a great uh, bit, actually, about what it's like when one of his one of his poems come out, which I, I love it because it gives you... Uh, it gives you a real taste of what it must have been like. And it says uh, what it must have been like in um, in 18th century London when a poet poem hit the streets. Bear in mind, this was like literacy was just starting to rise up and there was an absolute appetite for poetry, which I'd be fooling myself if I said existed now. But it, at the time, it was it was the, the a, 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 an Alexander Pope poem coming out was like the new Adele album. I mean, that it was that big. And he gives us a little insight here. What though my name stood rubric on the walls or plastered posts with claps in capitals? So what though my name stood rubric on the wall? So they used to um, plastered posts with claps in capitals. Claps were big sized versions of the title page of whatever was coming out. And so that would, they called them claps because they were clapped on the wall, glued up on the wall. And so his, his name would be in rubric because they often use red print uh, for the important bits. So he's talking about his name in red on these big posters slapped up all over the place when one of his poems coming out. What though my name stood rubric on the walls or plastered posts with claps in capitals? Or smoking forth a hundred hawkers load. On wings of winds came flying all abroad. So smoking forth a hundred hawkers. So loads of people are handing them out. And they're blowing all over the place. All this, this leaflets, the posters are up. It, there's a new Alexander Pope poem on the street. Hurrah! And so um, gather round for that. I, I, I love it. 
Okay, so uh, the attacks. Let's let's look at a couple of uh, attacks in um, in detail. First of all, Ambrose Phillips is one of the guys who gets uh, shot down. Ambrose Phillips was a, an early rival of uh, Pope's. Uh, they both wrote pastoral poetry, which was poetry based on a classical tradition. It was it was sort of about the countryside, but in a very very idealised way. And it would have um, there would be shepherds playing pipes, and they would be aching for beautiful maidens, etc., etc. And the, the the sort of blur and oasis of eighteenth um, century pastoral poetry was Alexander Pope and a guy called Ambrose Phillips. In here, he uh, has, a, has a go at Phillips and he mainly concentrates on the fact that, that, um, that Phillips basically nicks other people's stuff and also is not um, exactly prolific. So he describes Phillips as the bard whom pilfered pastorals renowned, so he sort of stole his reputation who turns a Persian tale for half a crown. He, 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 um, he, he published a, a thing called Persian Tales, which I think was fairly for the money sort of thing. And uh, half a crown is the standard prostitute fee then, so he's making a point about the, um, the motivation for publishing that work. The bard whom pilfered pastorals renown, who turns a Persian tale for half a crown, just writes to make his barrenness appear and strains from hard-bound brains eight lines a year. So he really tears into Phillips. Um, there is a bit of background to this which shows Pope in a less good light, in that when they were um, the, the stars of pastoral writing about uh, swains and gurgling streams, Pope wrote an anonymous review of Ambrose Phillips's poems and sort of pretended he was praising them, but very clearly was ripping them apart and making them seem ridiculous. So it's a pretty underhand piece of activity, which Phillips uh, found out about. And Phillips used to keep a birchen rod, was what they say, but actually um, a cane, in other words, like a school cane, uh, Phillips would keep one on the wall at Botton's coffee house so that if um, Pope came in, he could give him a thrashing. That sounds a bit uh, like big talk, but our Bothanot actually caned a man for uh, an abusive poem that had been written about him in 1730. So <laughs> it's a tough old world, the 18th century literary world. It's what I call a feud. Actually, when Pope went into London, he would often carry two pistols and take his Great Dane bounce with him as uh, as security. Okay, another attack is on a man called Joseph Addison, who was a, a real star of of the uh, of the eighteenth century and uh, a, a very gifted writer, who Pope felt had uh, sold out somewhat. Um, Pope calls Addison Atticus, but everyone would have known um, who he's uh, who he's talking about here. It's interesting this because um, they they had a a fall in. Uh, Addison had been quite a supporter of young Pope, and then when Pope started to get really good, Addison went off him a bit. There was a nice thing they had a meeting. Friends got them back together to try and uh, make friends and. Uh, Pope started by telling Addison that he'd sold his soul for a pension and that he was um, always trying to bring down new talent. So it didn't go that great. And in 1716, which is 19 years before this poem uh, was published, he wrote this bit about Addison. So this has been kicking around for 19 years in a drawer somewhere. And he sent that out to friends, uh, you know, to amuse them. But he also sent it to Addison and said, oh, you know, I've just written this uh, vicious attack on you. What do you think? And interestingly, Addison wrote quite a good review of Pope's uh, translation of the Iliad immediately afterwards. So I don't know if it was sent to Addison as a threat, maybe, to say, I'll, I'll publish this unless you uh, get nice. 
Anyway, let me let me uh, read you a bit of what he uh, what he says about Addison. By the way, I've got Joseph Addison's uh, signature on a legal document from the 18th century. Another little bit of uh, 18th century memorabilia. Uh, Pope, by the way, believed that Addison had hired someone to slag him off in print and in the clubs and that he definitely favoured a rival uh, translation of Homer, even though he'd encouraged Pope to write that one. So, um, so you know, he did think he was a, a hypocrite. But he was a, a big fan of his, as you'll see from this, this brief bit. Sorry, I am wittering. I just feel you need a bit more background than I normally give you to get this. And so this is probably going to be the longest podcast of them all. I apologise. Okay, this is him speaking of Addison, or Atticus, as he calls him. Blessed with each talent and each art to please, and born to write, converse, and live with ease. So that's praise. Should such a man, too fond to rule alone, bear like the Turk, no brother near the throne? So he's so fond, so keen to rule alone, to be the only star, he doesn't want anyone else to do well. This is what he's saying of him. So that he will view him with scornful, yet with jealous eyes, and hate for arts that caused himself to rise. So he hates these new poets uh, who are brilliant because he's threatened by them. Whereas I suppose Pope is justifying the fact that, that the poets he hates tend to be rubbish ones. And then he goes on. This is what he would describe as Addison's method of destroying people. It's, it's quite different from, uh, from Pope's. Damn with faint praise, assent with civil leer, and without sneering, teach the rest to sneer. So he's causing bad blood against the new poet, but without doing it himself. Willing to wound and yet afraid to strike. Just hint a fault and hesitate dislike. So he hasn't quite got the courage to, like Pope does, lay into someone publicly. It's all done a bit on the sly. He's, he was dead, I don't know if I mentioned that, Addison, by the time this, uh, this poem was printed. So it, it seems a bit cruel, maybe, to, um, to be slagging him off, but it's a shame to waste a good bit of poetry. And so in it goes, into the pot of dislike. It is, it is put. Okay, don't worry, we're nearly there, guys. By the way, you probably noticed in that, damn with faint praise, ascent with civil leer. And you think, hold on, damn with faint praise. Did Pope, did Pope come up with that? Yes, Pope did come up with that. And I would say that, Pope, in many ways, is the master of the poetic one-liner. He was such a crafter of poetry, such a, such a polisher of poetry. I mean, I know that there was that bit when he was talking about himself as a, as a young poet and how it all came so naturally to him, which was fantastic. You know, there's a bit of flannel in that. He was a very, very much a rewriter and a polisher and... Um, he also changed some of the dates on his early poems to make him sound like he was younger when he wrote them. <laughs> sort of a bit of making his own prodigy origin story. And uh, I, there's a story I love that he, uh, one of his maids complained that he, used, he once called her to his bedroom four times on a cold winter's night. I know what you're thinking, but no. He called her there, and I quote, to save a thought... So he'd had a good idea for a line or something and he called the maid up to bring him paper and a pen so he could make a note of it. I mean, just keep it on the bedside table, Alexander, for goodness sake. Anyway, the master of the, of the, um, of the one-liner. And uh, I'll, I'll, give you some, I'll give you some of his, his zingers. As we said, dams with faint praise in this one. Uh, a little learning is a dangerous thing. It's one of Pope's. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. One of Popes. I wish, I wish you were all here. We could all chant one of Popes at the end of these. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. 
to err is human, to forgive divine. He even gave the title to a Jim Carrey movie, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's one of one of Pope's. So, um, brilliant writer of aphorisms. So, yeah, so he revives an old spat with Phillips. That's an old, out-of-date argument, but that's in the poem because that poem, that would have been kicking around that um, that particular a bit of bile-fueled poetry. He's, he's happy to dig up Addison and uh, slaughter him. So it's, it's, it's not so much a walk down memory lane, it's a walk down grudge lane for, for Pope. But, 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 there is one grudge which is still very warm, and that is with uh, Lord Harvey and Lady Mary Wortley Montague, but I think particularly in this... Lord Harvey. Uh, he calls him Sporus. And like I say, this is a this is a guy attacking a a, a really um I know we attack politicians very casually now, but it was quite gutsy to lay into someone who was so influential. And I suppose it showed how big Pope was and how much money he'd got that he could um he could just not care. So he begins let sporus tremble. So, in other words, okay, here I go. I've, I've, I've looked back on some of my, um, my spats, some of my feuds, but now let's bring it right up to date. Um, it's like when a band says, uh, "And now something off our new album," and as soon as he says, "Let sporus tremble," our both not leaps in. Let sporus tremble. What? That thing of silk, sporus, that mere white curd of ass's milk. Satire or sense, alas, can sporus feel? Who breaks a butterfly upon a wheel? In other words, he's such a flimsy, weak, light person. It's not worth giving him the Alexander Pope treatment. Who breaks a butterfly on a wheel? A wheel was a sort of instrument of torture that would, I think, crack the spine of a man eventually. It was a Who Breaks a Butterfly on a Wheel, speaking of um, quotable Pope, was used, I think, as a headline when the Rolling Stones were arrested for um, possessing a bit of dope. I can't remember what the newspaper was, but they felt that they were making a very... Giving them really much worse punishment than uh, than they deserved, and they said, "Who breaks a butterfly on a wheel?" That was the headline. So Pope, you might think you don't know Pope, but he's everywhere. Anyway, so he's um, Arbuthnot tries to talk him out of it. It's not worth it, Alex. But off he goes again. Who breaks a butterfly upon a wheel? Yet let me flap this bog with gilded wings, this painted child of dirt that stinks and stings, whose buzz the witty and the fair annoys, yet wit ne'er tastes and beauty ne'er enjoys. So he can't, he doesn't have the taste to appreciate wit or beauty, um, Lord Harvey, Sporus as he's called here. He's such a, a scumbag. And then he, he dwells on this thing that he sees um, Harvey as a guy who either just plays completely stupid and just gets told what to do and is subservient or is the vicious gossip. He's very close to the Queen, so he's able to do a bit of damage. And he goes on here. Whether in florid impotence he speaks and as the prompter breathes, the puppet squeaks. So he's using a sort of a uh, theatrical image there that he's just like he, he's prompted, he's told to say things and to do things and he just does it like a puppet. Or the other half of um, Harvey. Or at the ear of Eve, familiar toad, half froth, half venom, spits himself abroad. So he's... Vile gossip, sort of bobbling like froth and poisonous. I mean, pretty bad. I think it's fair to say that he's, he's um, because this is a new subject for him, he's, he's really enjoying it. You know, when you do a, um, a gig and the new material goes well, it's particularly joyous to, uh, to dish it out. And I think 
So I'm, I'm going to give you a bit more anti-Harvey because it's so, it's so vicious. Um, we might as well wallow in it a little bit. Now, in this um, particular section, he refers, and this is maybe a tricky one for us woke people in the 21st century. Harvey was bisexual, and Pope is quite happy to use that as um, as, as a basis for his insults the idea that he is i suppose two-faced that he's neither one thing or the other throughout his life including his um in the bedroom okay brace yourself it's not as bad as you think it's going to be in he's still speaking of harvey in puns or politics or tales or lies or spite or smut or rhymes or blasphemies and now a what a rare treat a triplet instead of a couplet Hold on to your seats. He's wit all seesaw between that and this. Now high, now low, now master up, now miss. And he himself won vile antithesis. So, as I say, there is a reference in that, I think, now master up, now miss, to his various tastes. Amphibious things, so happy in two below the water and above the water and uh, various other examples amphibious thing that acting either part the trifling head or the corrupted heart fop at the toilet flatterer at the board now trips a lady and now struts a lord so he's saying as as he was before um that he's he can be an idiot when he wants people uh, to think he's an idiot or he can be vicious. He'll just do anything that's um, vile and unkind, Lord Harvey will. And um, Pope then, incredibly, gives another little, uh, another little pen picture of um, this time himself to contrast with the vileness of a Lord Harvey. So this is Pope on Pope. Not fortune's worshipper, nor fashion's fool, not Luca's madman, nor ambition's tool. So I'm not in it for the money, I don't care about fame. Like I say, this is how he wants us to see him. Not proud, nor servile, be one poet's praise. Me, in other words, I'm talking about me. Be one poet's praise that if he pleased, he pleased by manly ways. So he's sort of making this rather vile contrast between him and, 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 and Harvey. That flattery, even to kings, he held a shame. He's talking about himself in the third person here. So he never, he never flattered even kings. And thought a lie in verse or prose the same. Now, there is some truth in this description of um, Pope. He wasn't Lucas Madman nor Ambition's Tool, but that was kind of easy when you've got money and um, you're very, very famous. And there is a story that the, he was once dining with uh, the Prince of Wales and Pope fell asleep. He was so bored. So flattery even to kings, he held a shame. I don't think he's a bloke who really cared that much about posh people liking him he was doing very well thank you and he felt he was good enough to carry on and that's sort of brilliant remember this guy's he's disabled he's ill he's part of an oppressed minority give him a break will you let i tell you what i'm going to do um this the poem that upset him which was written by um harvey and montague sporus and sappho as he calls them Okay, it had to go. It said that he, he although he'd uh, translated Homer, he didn't really know the classics. He, he was rubbish. He said his birth was obscure, which is great, coming from a lord and a lady. You know, oh, his birth was obscure. That he was coarse, he didn't have any friends. But they really saved the big stuff for his physical disability. Their poem about him sort of ends with a, with a curse. Well, it is a curse. It says... But as thou hates be hated by mankind, and with the emblem of thy crooked mind marked on thy back like Cain by God's own hand, wander like him accused through the land. So your hump back is because of your inner hate. 
and they call him a little monster in the poem. They say he's a burlesque of a human being. There was a lot of this with Pope. Uh, uh, there's a, a contemporary illustration which you can you can uh, Google image, which is Pope's head stuck on a on a hunchbacked monkey, and so they didn't you know they didn't back off from that kind of cruelty. Okay, so. The poem ends, I mean, I'm not making this up. The poem ends, remember, Pope has said how horrible everyone is and how sort of great is. Poetry came to him completely naturally and he's he's not Lucas Madman or Ambition's tool. He writes for all the right reasons. And he ends by resolving now to concentrate on nursing his dying mother who incidentally died in 1773, two years earlier, but before the poem was published. But, you know, it's a shame to waste it again. And so um, this is, this is um, Pope talking about his, his dying mom, And it's sweet, actually. His dad has already died and he wants to make sure he spends some time with his mother. Me let the tender office long engage to rock the cradle of reposing age. So it's that thing, you know, the, the things that the old person becomes like a baby. With lenient arts, extend a mother's breath. Make languor smile and smooth the bed of death. So I'm going to make it all better for her as she, as she you know, slowly passes. Explore the thought, explain the asking eye. And keep a while one parent from the sky. And I love the idea of keeping a parent from the sky as a way of um, keeping them alive. <laughs> Quite literal, that. So look, that, you know, and it ends, it actually ends with him praising Arbuthnot, which I guess makes sense. And he said, um, preserve him social, cheerful and serene and just as rich as when he served the Queen. Um, the, he had been the Queen's physician, and Pope was probably happy to mention that at the end, just to give the poem a bit of um, a bit of kudos. You know, this is my epistle to Doctor Arbuthnot. You know, he was physician to the Queen. That guy, Arbuthnot, exact was ill when this was written and did die shortly afterwards. So um, it was a great way to go for him. Look, try Pope. It's different. You know, it's different. The sort of Poet, poems I often read to you, more modern poems. There is a sort of super intimacy uh, when I get when I when I read um, a lot of poets, and it's almost like thought transference. You know, the connection. I really feel as close to them, and, and really like two human beings communicated on a very very deep level. I don't really get that with Pope because he. He's keeping a distance, and I don't mean that he's just um, using a, a, a sort of a filtering technique. I mean, I think he doesn't want to. He doesn't want it to be too real. He wants it to be polished. He wants it to be slightly restrained. Even his rage and his bitterness is smooth and lovely. You know, he's he's. It's incredible. It's a different kind of poetic joy I get from it. I get the joy of, 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 of the master at work because um, whatever the topic is, it, 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 it's, just, it's just a beautiful thing. He's so good at writing poetry, as simple as that. Technically, he's amazing. Was he justified in all this bile that he poured on people? Is that acceptable? History is written by the winners, they say, and or here by the best poets. So... You know, the other guys, uh, we, if you know about Pope, you tend to think of the other guys, like Ambrose Phillips and Collie Sibber and Lord Harvey and all that. You tend to think of them as losers who deserve it. But that's probably because we're siding with the, the superstar poet. Um, I, I'm just going to leave you with the last story, as, just to give you a sense of what the 18th century literary world was like. And I think it's probably true to say no one is blameless in that world. Okay, there was a publisher called Edmund Curl. This is a short story, by the way. 
uh, Edmund Curl, who gets mentioned actually in this poem, he was a dodgy character. He sort of specialised in scandalous stuff, pornography, and he often would print stuff without paying the authors, and he was just a dodgy publisher. And he he, he printed um, three poems. That sounds like the TARDIS arriving. Um, so he printed... Uh, I'm going to let it go. Look, you know, I'm, I'm in my bedroom. Can you just bear with me? I'm not in some fancy studio somewhere. So, um, yeah, so Edmund Curl got hold of three unpublished poems by Pope and decided he was going to publish them and not give Pope any money. And Pope just didn't want them published. So he warned Curl. Curl carried on and did it. OK, that's the background. So Pope suggested that they met up to discuss it. And so they met up and Colonel thought it's good, it's good to keep in with Pope, you know. So they did that and they met up and had a meal and Pope slipped an emetic in, um, in Curl's drink and Curl had a terrible, on his hands and knees, fit of vomiting. I mean, he was in a really terrible state, nearly killed him. Which sounds outrageous, but then, and this is the 18th century literary world, I think, summed up. Pope then published a pamphlet entitled A Full and True Account of a Horrid and Barbarous Revenge by Poison on the Body of Mr Edmund Curl. They were, I think it's fair to say, different times. But one thing's for sure, as I say, Pope was a master poetic craftsman he was like one of those super skilled swiss watchmakers precision beauty perfect rhythm and um i can't resist it it was really good at uh, winding people up thank you for listening to my poetry podcast if you enjoyed it please make sure to rate review and subscribe oh i hate saying that I also have a book out, How to Enjoy Poetry, which you can get from all the usual places. I love saying that. And finally, don't forget you can catch me every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. More jokes, less poetry. <laughs>